On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Raven. And Raven was in an 18-year abusive relationship with a victim-playing abuser. It's a story of achieving, future-faking, meddling, Mr. Right, deprivation, and leaving for good. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Raven. How are you? I'm great, Brandon. How are you doing? I am doing well, and if you want to be a guest like Raven is today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our guest form page. There you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our guest form and press the submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. And today you're going to hear Raven's story and a quick uh, content warning on this story. Uh, Not all of the views that are expressed by Raven in this episode are necessarily the views of the show when it comes to the healing process. This is Raven's healing process, and it's not something that is, um, it's experimental, so it's not something that we are recommending ourselves. And that is the content warning for this episode. So now I'm going to get out of my way and your way. Raven, the floor is now yours. Thank you so much, Brandon. I'm so glad to be here. So I'm going to kind of begin at the beginning. Uh, I grew up in a dysfunctional and emotionally abusive home, and I got very specific messages, especially from my mom, messages like, um, you'll have to compromise more than you want to in a relationship, and it's very important to have a relationship. And she would tell me that you're lucky to have a relationship because many people end up alone or go through their lives alone. And there was a constant message from both of my parents saying, you will have to work very hard to be worthy to live in the world at all. Like you, you have to succeed and be excellent in order to kind of have the right to use the resources of the earth. So they definitely like, there is a lot of burden placed on their kids to be uh, radically successful, to be, um, you know, one of the things that they used to say is you really should have the Nobel Prize by the time you're 28. Did you? Uh, did I? Oh, my God. Uh, I, I was crazy. I um, graduated third in my class in college, went on to get a PhD with a free ride. Um, and my goal was to be a tenured full professor at a tier one research university. So I did live that out. And I assume you're a perfectionist. You know, Actually, I'm not really a perfectionist. Okay, so, so, so explain this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm really ambitious and I really want to succeed. And I understand that perfectionism can work against you. So really, I tend to use the 80-20 rule. So right, so like 80, 80% of the work takes up 20% of the time and, and all those things. So I would work really, really hard, but I was good at knowing when to drop it. Um, 
and I would drop it at the deadline. So my grants always went in, even if they weren't proofread for the last time. Uh, my papers always got submitted on time, even if they weren't proofread. I would just let the editor catch that. So really high standards, but but I didn't fall prey to like, oh, I can't turn things in because I'm so perfectionistic. Look. Um, so I, I think I had managed that pretty well. I think I have a lot of narcissistic traits and tendencies myself, actually, because I, I had to be successful and I had to win and I had to be better than everyone. You're an achiever over, an over, achiever. over, an, over a perfectionist. Yeah, yeah. Like, um, and I, was, I did grow up in a crazy family, so I was really interested in the DSM and I was busy diagnosing myself and everyone else and then trying to climb out of that, right? So it's like, well, okay, I've got a lot of traits of narcissism, so I'm going to be better than that. So tell us a bit more about your household growing up and your belief that your mom was a step beyond codependency. She really, she would absolutely agree with everyone around her all the time, which meant that to a kid, she doesn't have a point of view. She contradicted herself all the time. Um, she also believed that um, she couldn't work or earn money so she felt like she had to please people. She had a very strong personality behind closed doors, which is something that you read about all the time. But in front of people, she would just agree with everyone um, and, and just, you know, kind of fawn over the men. My parents were both born in the 1920s. So I think that uh, that it was actually more like the culture, uh, but it's weirder as we progress, you know, in time. Um, but but back then, I think the women really couldn't work and uh, and she was very worried about having a home. And so she would just kind of compulsively please everyone. So I got that programming as well. So your parents, you know, were born in the 1920s. How did depression era parents affect the way you view um, maybe money and how does that or, or just resources as a whole, and how does that affect you maybe in relation to, you know, relationships growing uh, that you're going to get into? What a fantastic question, because I definitely got this imprinting from parents who had lived through the Depression, and it was um, be very careful, achieve as much as you can, make hay while the sun shines, um, early to bed and early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise was like, a picture above our dinner table. So it was like, there was a lot of strict, like you're going to have to work hard and don't waste any food. So yeah, there was a lot of beef frugal. Um, don't turn the heat on, don't turn the air conditioning on, you know, just change your clothes. Uh, you know, all of this kind of turn the lights out at night, like be really, really conscientious because uh, money is always something that you should worry about and always have a savings. And I did all of these things. Like I was very, thank God, thank God that my credit score was so good because I've now been living on my credit cards for four years. Thank God I built that up. So yeah, <laughs> um, I have to say, so my parents thought that uh, divorce was shameful and I had rejected that completely because they hated each other. They absolutely hated each other for the entire time I was growing up, and I wished that they'd gotten divorced. So I sort of knew that that was bullshit, but that doesn't mean that I knew what to replace it with. Right? I didn't have 
other ideas, I had just rejected their ideas, if that makes sense. Uh, just a couple of other things about my mom, because I think that they're really psychologically interesting. Um, my mom had a lot of strange beliefs. She punished me really badly for breaking up with my high school boyfriend because she believed that that boyfriend was the reincarnation of her brother, my uncle, who had been killed in World War II. Um, her ideas about relationships were that one day you just find your soulmate, you know, immediately, that's it. I didn't really believe that, but that was kind of the only advice I knew for seeking a relationship. And she also told me, she told me when I was a kid, you know how kids think that there are monsters under the bed? Um, she believes that monsters under the bed were real, but that only children could see them and that adults were kind of stupid and out of it. So that's what she would tell me when I was a kid. When I was afraid of the monsters under my bed. So, um, so you know, it's a colorful background. Um, so, of course, uh, I became a people pleaser because that was what was being modeled for me from my mom. But I was also a psych major. And I can just say, yeah, man, we really are trying to figure ourselves out. So I got into therapy. I read voraciously and I worked for years and years to heal the family wound. And I would honestly say that by the time I met my abuser at the age of 36, I was about as healed as anybody ever can be. Um, I, it, I still thought that it would be really hard to make a relationship work. Like you can't shake everything. Like I thought I was gonna have to really roll up my sleeves and compromise to have a good relationship. But, um, but I also thought that I could do it. Like I had real self-esteem because I had real accomplishments. And I felt like I could handle anything. Boy, did that come to bite me in the butt. This I was so sure that I was the Zen master who could handle anything. Uh, yeah, you can't handle everything. So that was, that was a difficult belief that I had to overcome. So yeah, I was a total overachiever. Give me a demand and I could meet it. So before we get to the relationship that this story is about... You were um, married a couple of times. The first one was not the best relationship. You weren't just really on the same page with that person. And then the second person you married turned out that they were gay. They also grew up as a Jehovah Witness, and you were very helpful in the dissolution of that marriage and being for them while they work things out. But then for the next 10 years, you were just dating for a very long time. But eventually you do meet the person that this story is about. So take it from here. I had my own paycheck. I had a great research program. I had good friends and close relationships. And I can say that like, like all people, uh, I was sometimes lonely and I was sometimes insecure or I was sometimes anxious, but I can't describe any of that as pathological. Um, so I was pretty psychologically healthy. Um, and then in comes the abuser. So um, he was my best friend's best friend. Uh, so I'd love to say that my radar was down because I'd assumed that the friend of my friend would be a great person. And I did. Uh, but the rest of it is, I didn't know how to look for a relationship or for compatibility. Um, I've been told that you just meet the one by happenstance. So a man comes along who's recommended to me by my best friend, and that seemed perfect to me. Um, notice, though, that when your friends introduce you to somebody who is their friend, too, suddenly there is weird pressure for that relationship to work out. 
right? It becomes socially awkward if you want to break up with someone, and that was a factor in there too. Um, we did move in together way too fast, from very textbook in this regard. Um, he was getting divorced and he'd been sleeping on our friend's couch. So when we started seeing each other, it became way too easy for him to just stay overnight and then stay overnight again, stay overnight again. And I knew he'd just be going back to sleep on the friend's couch. So I'd let him stay. But it was also fun and exciting and the sex was fun and it was great. Um, and we were getting really close um, because he would tell me all about like his his sad past with all of these people who had just abused him so much. So it wasn't like overt love bombing, um, but it, it was sort of like this, this covert narcissist, Dr. Romani talks about um, how covert narcissists love bomb and that they love bomb just by like telling you how they've been done wrong. Everyone has betrayed him. His wife had betrayed him, his best friend, his employer, and his mom had Alzheimer's and he was taking care of her and his dad was abusive. But it felt so intimate. We were really sharing our stories and I got hooked into pitying him and helping him out. Oh my God, here's this wonderful man who's never had a chance and I was going to be the woman who saved him. You know, so um, and of course, and I'm strong and capable and an overachiever. So I was all about I'm going to save this guy. Um, and his stories seemed believable because when he appeared in my life, he was a millionaire. He had all this money and he had attributed it all to his own success. Um, and so I thought, wow, he just ran into this terrible streak of luck and, you know, and I'll just help him pull out. And years later, I found out that that was a distorted view of the truth. Um, he had inherited a lot of his wealth and he'd been fired from multiple jobs from being uh, difficult um, and kind of telling off his managers and his bosses and stuff. Um, but he was really into being a victim and I was really into helping that victim. I was going to be the great gal and we were going to be happy. I was so determined for this relationship to succeed um, because that's what ambitious people do. <laughs> um, so he started doing this thing that I've been calling aggressive helping. He would ask me to help if he could help with something I was doing at work. And usually like I'd say no. Uh, because, you know, what, what can he do? Like, he's got a degree in earth science and I've, you know, got a PhD in philosophy. So no, you can't really help. Um, but he would persist. He would never take no for an answer. So he'd offer to help and then he would not stop badgering me until I invented something for him to do. So he would ask and ask and ask. He wouldn't leave me alone to work. It started to really impact me because I couldn't grade or prep my classes or write papers for more than five minutes without him coming up going, can I help? Can I help? Can I help? Can I do this for you? Can I do that for you? And so I was like, I couldn't concentrate on any task. So I started to like make up tasks for him to do. Um, notice though that he looks like such a great guy because he's just being helpful. He's helping me. What a wonderful guy. So when it comes to him and being this wonderful guy, and this is how he's presenting to you, how does he present to the outside world? You know, obviously your friend is friends with him. So uh -huh. how do they all view him and do they have information about him that you are not privy to? Or is, does he hide everything from everyone? Um, 
for the most part, I would say he hides everything from everyone. Uh, but that doesn't mean like he still trades out masks. So if when it was my friends, like over to the house, like if I would have people over for dinner or drinks or just, you know, whatever the afternoon to chat and have fun, um, he would always have a problem with that. There was always a problem. He would say, oh, I can't stand your chatty little friend. I don't want her to come over to the house anymore. She talks too much. And, uh, and then he got into a fight with the friend who introduced us and, and kind of ended that friendship. Like he just started blaming him for everything and, and you know, criticizing him. And so there was this um, animosity toward anyone who I had a connection with uh, socially. Uh, so, but then he could tell himself and tell me that he's really just helping me out. He's just giving me good advice. Like my friends really aren't nice to me and he's just helping me out. Um, he'd be helping me out with my work. Um, and he would just like, when he got into a fight with our mutual friend, uh, he was helping me out because I just, I was blind to what a fool he, you know, what a bad person he was. There's a lot of different things going on within that I'm helping out phrase. Uh -huh. You know, there's isolation with I'm helping out. There is being right all the time in his belief system, you as an extension of him, uh, I'm helping out. And, you know, he is, sounds like someone who is just I assume is under mostly a Mr. Right, uh, Lundy Bancroft list type of abuser and is no matter if they're an expert or not in a specific situation, that <laughs> they're going to meddle in whatever yes. is going on. The meddler. Yes. He's so the aggressive helpfulness, the meddling. He's a nice blend of a Mr. Right and the victim. Um, but yeah, so he's he's the victim, he's the victim, he's the victim, but he's also gonna, he has to tell everybody what to do and everybody's doing everything wrong. So there was a lot of that. So what was the first big red flag that you saw? Um, so the first red flag, This I think that this is really fun and really relatable. Um, so I was giving a presentation in Europe and he was going to a wedding in Europe the following week. Um, and so we had both had separate plans to be in Europe at almost the same time before we got together. I'd already gotten my plane ticket, but we decided to go together. We were going to have a fabulous European getaway, two new lovers vacationing in Europe. That's going to be so fun. Um, and then he wanted me to switch my ticket to stay the extra week and go to the wedding with him. And switching the ticket was really expensive. Um, I thought about it a little, but honestly, I was making good money and I'd just been promoted. And I was like, yeah, you know, now I have a fabulous new lover and we're going to go on a fabulous vacation. So I paid $1,000 to change the ticket. And guess what? He lost his mind. He lost his mind in a way I'd never seen anyone lose their minds. He was terrifying. So I'm about 120 pounds and he's about 220 pounds. And he's screaming at the top of his lungs, throwing my kitchen chairs, slamming on my kitchen table with his fist so hard I thought he might break the table. I've been never seen a human being act like that. 
and now I'm I'm white and uptight and from New England, so there is certainly a code of being uh, with with people from New England. But it was just it was so over the top. I didn't know what to do, and I realized that like my first emotional reaction was that I felt embarrassed for him. Like I was trying to explain to him like psychology. Like that he shouldn't be that upset over me spending a thousand dollars because it's my money and I had chosen and it was fine. And they, that just bounced off completely. Like he was inconsolable. And uh, like, this is part of it. I later found out that no information would ever change his mind. But in the moment, I thought that I just wasn't expressing myself well enough or that I wasn't presenting the argument well. Uh, but actually nothing, nothing changes his mind. It doesn't matter how, how clever you are or how educated you are. And he was terrifying. And of course, get, his stance is great. His stance is he was angry because the airlines were ripping me off, right? So he was always angry at me, but somehow it was in my defense. So I was absorbing the brunt of the anger. I was terrified. And I honestly thought my neighbors were going to call the police because he was so loud for such a long period of time. So I ended up agreeing. I, I canceled my credit card and claimed that the ticket charge was fraud to calm him down because he wasn't going to stop until I did that. Uh, but really, it was about like, it wasn't that his argument was great. It was that I was afraid that there was going to be like a public scene. Um, and then, interestingly, his urges for control, he ended up paying for a new ticket for me with his miles. And I think he loved that because now I was dependent on him and his ticket and his miles. And I was supposed to be grateful for him, to him for flying me to Europe for free. I think that this happens to lots of people too. Over the next several days, I called several friends and told them about how angry he got. It was freaking me out. And all of my friends agreed that I should give him another chance because otherwise things had been great. And this is important because if everybody in your support system also treats it as, oh, that's just a one-off, right? What, what reason, like, it would be so weird if I just dumped him immediately, right? Who does that on the first fight? And so, and I also, I didn't want to break up with him. I wanted to believe that it was a one-off weird incident that no human would really ever act like that. Um, so I just, I just think it's really interesting that I had no script for that kind of behavior. And I want to note that in my family of origin, my brother would fly into a similar sort of rage. So I wasn't unfamiliar with narcissistic rage, but my abuser was so much more abusive. He was like a quantum leap more. Um, and I just, I had no recipe for that. I had no script. So I just sort of pretended that it didn't happen. <laughs> Um, there was another incident that happened hot on the heels of that, that I also want to tell you about, um, which I'm going to call the trauma bond incident. Though, of course, trauma bonds are really developed, um, by, with multiple, right. With multiple incidents. Uh, but I was going to drive from Los Angeles to San Diego to help a friend with something. And it was, it was the friend who talked too much and he didn't really like her. And, you know, it is true that she's a very chatty verbal person. Um, but, but he, he almost didn't go and then he decided to come along and then something happened that was really trivial. Like, I think that she was late by 15 minutes and then maybe we had to make an extra stop, but it wasn't anything really interesting that happened and on the way back. 
he freaked out again at that same level of rage. And he started screaming at me that I had ruined his life. Now, note, we had been dating for about four months and he was 50 years old, but he just berated me and berated me, asking myself, how can you look in the mirror? How can you sleep at night knowing that, you know, you've destroyed my whole life, blah. Um, and he would just ask me, like, why can't I see how much he is suffering? Um, and then he starts in. Raven must be one of these evil, selfish people who is only out for themselves, who uses everyone around them and laughs at how much I get out of the other person. So he's yelling at the top of his lungs, slamming his fist against the steering wheel. We were on the freeway going about 85 miles an hour. And after about 30 minutes of this, I was like, pull over, I want to walk home. So he screams at me that I'm being ridiculous and he speeds up. So now we're going like over 90. And he just continues to berate me and yell at me for the entire two-hour drive. And I did, Brandon. I tried to open the door and jump out of the car because I was so afraid of him. I thought it would just be cooler to get hurt, uh, you know, jumping out of a speeding car than to deal with him. Um, so at the end of the day, I didn't jump, uh, but I was really messed up. I think that there's something about being extraordinarily threatened and frightened and not being able to escape, that is crucial to that trauma bond. Um, I just, I couldn't get out of the car. I didn't know what to do. Um, so he just yelled at me and yelled at me, yelled at me. And by the end of it, I, it was sort of like, I believed him like, oh my God, I don't really think that I've ruined his life, but I clearly hurt him so much that I need to roll up my sleeves and get to work. There's all that overachiever stuff. Uh, I need to get to work to make sure that this relationship works. So I really need to fix this. Um, he's really upset about these things and I'll just get to work and I'll just work harder. Um, so after that, so we get home. I was inconsolable for days after that. But by the evening, he just wanted to have a beer with me and have a nice dinner. And I'm reminded of something Tony Overbay says in his Waking Up to Narcissism podcast. Uh, he says the emotionally immature unload on you and they say terrible things, but then they feel better because they vented. And then they say something like, hey, do you want to go ride bikes? And that's exactly how it felt. It was like, um, you know, he just screamed at me for two hours and he was like, oh, let's go get dinner. No problem. He feels better. Um, so total unawareness that I was a separate person. Um, total unawareness that maybe I'm upset at what happened. Um, overall, I want to say that like his behavior was an assault on all of the sane and healthy parts of me. He'd make fun of me when I was going to the gym until I stopped going to the gym. He made fun of any psychological or mental health claims that I made, and he would belittle me for going to therapy. All the tools that I had were beneath him, and he let me know this explicitly and often. So like the sane people end up changing. Nothing works and you end up changing the good parts of you. Um, and I think the message is just nothing works with these people because they think that they're the authority and you're just always wrong to them because you're you. So you're in this relationship and you're trapped. Yeah. And you're trapped in this abuse is going on, but he's done a good job of the stimulus in a sense to activate the achiever in you and yes. that the 
a, you know, you now believe what's coming out of his mouth and now the achiever has taken over. So yes. as an achiever and someone who goes about their work in, in your way, if you were to have seen him as a project, mm-hmm. um, what are the, I guess, when you looked at it in that way as the project, what are the um, points of how you're putting your project together, if that makes sense? Or like, how are you attacking this problem? In your mind, did you say, this is what I have to do to make this work? Is that what's kind of going through your mind? Or is it more of like, let's go day by day and collect our, um, our information to create our hypotheses and then act on that? Um, or am I just way off in this at no, all? No, no. I'm trying to think of like a good way to answer that. Um, I was convinced that I could make the relationship work and that I just had to figure out kind of what the problem was. And I had beliefs that were like, because we both want the, re- the relationship. Like it took me years to figure out that I'm trying to have a relationship and he's trying to win something in his mind. Like he's trying to be dominant and I'm trying to have a relationship of equal. Um, so, so I, in my belief that we're both trying to have a relationship, I would just be like, oh, so there's some things that really set him off. Money really sets him off. So I'll just show him that I'm really good with money because I'm really good with money. So that won't be hard. Right. Or it's like, oh, well, you know, he would tell the truth. Like you would say, you know, my chatty little friend is a chatty little friend. She really does talk a lot. I think she's fun and engaging and delightful. And he just wanted her to shut up probably because she was taking the attention away from him. Um, So I was kind of reducing it to, oh, it's just this problem and this problem and this problem. So we'll just resolve these three problems and, and then everything will be great. So I was kind of buying into his minimization um, and I was kind of buying into that. Oh, it's, it's not that he's just angry all the time. Right. Or it's not that he just needs to be dominant all the time. It really is that my friend is too chatty and I'll just ask her to, you know, make sure that he's included in the conversation. But it was that wasn't the solution at all because he's just difficult. Um, so when did the devaluation begin in your relationship? So the devaluation really began when I ran into some trouble at work. Um, within just a few months through ag- his aggressive helpfulness, uh, he had become thoroughly ensconced at my job. Um, he, and at first it's cute. Oh my God, my boyfriend came to help me with my computer. Um, and I know that that's a little weird, but university campuses are kind of open. Um, it's not too odd to see spouses uh, on campus bringing their, their you know, spouse uh, lunch or whatever. Uh, and it looked caring and hardworking to all my colleagues. So when you were asking about the mask, um, at first he looked like this great guy who was just going to come in and lend a hand. And also a lot of academic work is done casually. Um, like we might brainstorm a grant or a research project over drinks or dinner or lunch, and he'd appear and get involved. So sometimes he would get involved with my colleagues over drinks or, you know, over a dinner. Um and he started coming to campus all the time. He started coming to dinners all the time. Um, he came to campus to help me with my computer. 
immediately started yelling at the IT guys, um, screamed at them, called them incompetent. And so that was the end of me having IT assistance at my first job. Um, he then got into a, a huge fight with our mutual best friend. Um, so suddenly my research collaboration with our mutual friend was in the toilet. Um, then he alienated more of my colleagues. Uh, work became harder for me socially. And then I was elected chair of my department. And I mean, long story short, um, I became chair and the department was kind of a disaster. Uh, the prior chair hadn't been doing uh, things that needed to get done. And there was a long blacklist of students who needed to be graduated and things like that. Um, and so I would talk about my problems to my significant other, which I think is a normal thing to do, but he can't handle it. Um, he starts telling me that I'm stupid and I'm crazy. Um, he starts telling me that I don't understand my job, that I need to memorize my job contract and quote, be able to quote it to him or I don't really know what I'm doing. Um, so just this kind of constant assault on my competence. I'm always doing it wrong. I don't understand what my colleagues want. I don't understand what's going on. And I just became more and more in overdrive to be competent and successful and superwoman. Um, and that resulted in, he started keeping me up all night long. Um, he would yell at me that I'm incompetent, um, keep me up all night long. So I'd, I'd go to work and it would be really difficult uh, during the day as chair. And then he would, I would come home and he would just yell at me and call me stupid um, and not let me sleep. Um, so in under five months, I'd left that position. So this person has come into your life. You know, there's the red flags, but now they've come and interrupted your work life. They put down the thing that you take pride in the most. You know, they're really, they're really attacking your identity and everything about it. You know, not just coming into work is a, is like the thing. I mean, this is the beginning of financial abuse where, you know, your paycheck is now out the window here. It's, you know, he, he has no issues or boundary or like boundary issues, not just going to work, but with the people who you work with and yep. causing a disturbance. Like, it's like, there's no shame or anything that kind of gets in the way there. And, you know, keeping you up at night is obviously, you know, it's a manipulation tactic, it's abuse, but it is also going to affect your day to day and how you're able to actually perform at work, which is financial abuse as well, or a form of financial abuse. So this is a major thing. Like this isn't a small kind of slow, subtle thing. I mean, this is boom right out there in the open. So how are you able to now say like, I thought I could fix this person. Now this person is breaking me. Or are you able to comprehend that, that, you know, this thing that you thought you could figure out is now 
taking all of the pieces away from you to even go about figuring anything out. He's taking away a lot of your abilities um, and things are like the focus of the clarity in your life. Like the fog is, has to be tremendous at this point. So, so boy was there gaslighting. But so first, let me say that like the overachiever part of me was completely kicked in. And even though I was pretty clear minded about he's really interfering, this is really a problem. And I would confront him about it. We would fight, which would lead to me having losing another night's sleep because he'll just fight all night. Um, so I would I, I blamed myself like I failed to handle this property properly. Like I didn't convince him uh, to get therapy because he needs therapy. He's too involved in my work, but I'm an overachiever and I'm competent. So I'm just going to convince him to go to therapy <laughs> was my first thing. And I did it. I did it. I got him to go to therapy. Um, and all that happened was um, he was terribly disappointed that the therapist didn't fix him. And that became a point of contention in the relationship for years is that I'm a horrible person because I insisted that I, that he go to therapy. So he wasted thousands of dollars on therapy that didn't help. And, you know, I would say like, you know, you're supposed to participate in your therapy and, you know, you need to go in and set your own goals and let the therapist work with you to achieve them. And, and I said, here's a goal for you. Stop yelling at me. <laughs> right? So I was like there trying to help him do his therapy and everything trying I was trying to fix him the ugly part of why doesn't she leave or why doesn't the partner leave non-gendered is because we do see that they're hurting and we do see that they're damaged and I was just hoping oh we'll just we'll get him on Lexapro we'll get him on some good SSRI and he won't be so depressed anymore and then he can take a good look at his emotional issues and why is he so controlling and why is he doing this so I'm really embarrassed, right? Because I could name almost everything that was going on, almost everything. I couldn't, I had no idea I was being abused. I just thought that I wasn't fighting hard enough for the relationship for a long time. So at this point, you are just being exhausted by him. Uh, within job two and three, you did end up buying a home together and there's more sleep deprivation that is happening. And now at job three, that sleep deprivation and arguments that are occurring on, there's more interference that's going on. It's making your job impossible to do well. And also during this time, you are actively trying to get him to leave the home, but there's nothing that you're able to do. And eventually you have this brief work study sabbatical where you had a break and he really didn't like that. And then he kind of future faked you. And with these apologies of making things different, if you, if, you, know, if you come back uh, sooner rather than later. So you came back early and then more of the same stuff starts to happen. And you wrote me that at this point, you really, really did not have anything left to put into work. You were just exhausted. The deprivation got to you, the deprivation, like sleep deprivation, and just the exhaustion of, of the arguments that was going on. So again, you know, you quit your job here just to reset yourself but you still didn't clue into things being 
abuse or because he was right about some things, it was kind of tricky. It was confusing for you. So eventually things did click though. So walk us through this. So I really didn't get it, Brandon. I didn't get what was going on until 2019. A friend of mine told me to read Evan Stark, Coercive Control. And in Evan Stark, he recommended Lundy Bancroft. And suddenly it was like, I've got to stop trying to make this relationship succeed because I'm a success and bite the bullet and say, I'm actually being victimized. I could have been in the book, if you've read Not the People Like Us, which is about sort of like upper class, wealthy, abusive relationships, because I had so bought in to this cultural myth that abusive men drink beer and wear wife beater shirts. That's what they do. They're not successful millionaire guys who come sweep, sweep you off your feet and offer to bring you on a luxury vacation to Colorado. <laughs> right they're like they're like these guys with you know tattoos and stuff um so i really bought into this myth and and lundy bancroft and evan stark just disabused me of of these notions and it's like no he's like a, a wealthy jerk um at the very end i finally contact the battered women's center on campus and I was embarrassed and I was horrified. And I'm going to say they kind of made it worse because they really insisted that I come in in person. And I was so ashamed that I never came in in person. And then that they didn't really want to work with me over the phone. So I don't think that they understood how ashamed um, the, the victims can feel. So I, I left. Um, I had actually tried to get a leave without pay. And it was rejected. It was rejected because I didn't explain it. And I understand that, you know, I didn't explain why I needed to leave without pay. But God, I wish that uh, there had been a better mechanism on campus for somebody to say, I'm in trouble. I would like to do this job, but I'm in trouble. Um, but the way that it was set up is like you you had to go in and you had to work with the Battered Women's Center, and I was too embarrassed to do that. So in 2020, I threw two cats in the car and I drove away. I didn't have a great plan. My place to live fell through. I pulled money out of my retirement account, um, and I ended up moving back in with him. And I tried again in 2021. Um, and I ended up in an apartment with no heat and no working toilet. So then I, and I went back again, uh, in 2022, I left again, but I ended up living in Airbnbs without my cats, which made me feel bad because I didn't, I, you know, you can't save yourself and leave these other dependents with the jerk. Um, and in 2023, I finally had two friends come over and remove him from my house. Thanks guys for removing him from my house. Um, and I, I threw all five cats in the car and I, I now am in a stable but temporary place to live while my house is on the market. So it took me four attempts to get out. It cost me over $25,000 to get away from him. And uh, my house just sold last week. Um, and I'm waiting for the money to come in. So I'm actually really, really broke right now. But in a month, I won't be broke. And I'm safe and the cats are safe. 
Um, and I'm just, I'm glad that I was an overachiever because if I hadn't had that good credit, I don't know what I would be doing. I'd still be there. And if my friends hadn't uh, moved him out, I'd still be there. Uh, so, you know, thanks, thanks to my friends for helping. So first of all, thank you to your friends. Second, you know, you went through there going back four times. And from the moment that you didn't have your job anymore, you know, I'm, my assumption here is that your mental well-being had, had taken such a toll that working became impossible. Yep. And now you are stuck. You have dwindling funds. You got it. And, you know, leaving, trying to make it on your own, I assume there might be stumbling blocks or like you're reeled back in in these times. So what is your, you know, frame? Like, are you in a depression? And... Is your mind so twisted around at this point, you know, like functioning, day-to-day functioning is difficult and maybe brushing your teeth could be difficult type of things. Like just basic taking care of yourself has become, you know, that has, he has done such a number on you that the basics are what you're striving for. Wow. Wow. You nailed it. That's the perfect description. So yeah, I wasn't brushing my teeth. I could not get up off the couch. I would get a bottle of wine and drink it. And on the one hand, I'm glad it was only one bottle, but you know, I'm not that big of a person. So a bottle of wine will fix you up really good. Um, So yeah, I would just drink and be upset that I was unemployed. I was, I was upset because I had a book pressy and I was about to like get to work on my book. I had been, I was being encouraged to go up for full professor. And so it was a loss, not only of my job and my income, but also kind of my life project and things that I'd been working on for a long time. Um, So all of that kind of stopped and Every time I tried to do something, I'd been blocked. And there is, you know, the, that study with the, the dogs and the learned helplessness where they would electrify the floor and then the dogs would try to get away, but they couldn't get away. And so after a while, they would just lie down on the floor and let the electric, you know, shocks hurt them. Um, and those dogs, right, those dogs had to be retrained. Like they opened up the cages and the dogs would just lie on the floor. And that was me, man. I would just lie on the couch with a bottle of wine. I was free. I was freed in August of last year. And so uh, for four months, I did nothing. I laid on the couch and watched Netflix. And I was just depressed and weird. Uh, But there was, I just couldn't get up. Everything that I'd done was wrong. And I'd been so punished for being active. They punish you for being active. They punish you for trying to save yourself or for for doing something in your own self-interest. So I, I'd just been so shocked by everything that happened that I just laid down. Um, and finally what I did is I took a, a D I took two grams of mushrooms and uh, magic mushrooms, the psilocybin kind. And I cried for 
four hours. I did all the things that they are uh, saying that one should do in sort of a psychedelic trauma therapy session where I paid a lot of attention to my body and I let myself shake and, and heave and cry. And then I was better, not healed, not healed, but better. I was better enough to pack the car, pack the cats in the car and, and go to my next place to live. And I made it through a semester of adjunct teaching, uh, a lot with microdosing LSD uh, once or twice a week because it would keep my spirits up. And I just last week had uh, my own uh, psychedelic therapy session with LSD I, um, and had a wonderful, wonderful experience. And I'm coming back more toward normal now. So I'm starting to feel like it's okay to go do things in the world. I'm starting to feel excited about doing things again. I'm starting to think about how I can repair some of the friendships that got damaged and what I might like to do next uh, with, with my degree and with my life. But gosh, I feel better. I feel, and you know, this was only uh, six months ago where I was lying on the couch drinking wine, being unable to get up and brush my teeth. And now I'm up and I'm starting to think about uh, putting my life back together. And what was the process of selling the home and divvying of funds? And were there issues with them to even get house to market and things like that? Well, so I had wanted to sell the house in 2020, uh, the date of my first escape, but the abuser was still in the house and he wasn't going to leave and he was really hostile and belligerent. And I honestly thought that he might be like, I think he's so difficult that I thought that he himself might pee on the carpet just so that it would smell bad, just so that the house wouldn't sell. And he did let the cats pee all over it. They had not, I have good cats. They have not peed since I've left, but, um, but they have not peed, but he would, uh, you know, ignore them and yell at them and stuff and they would pee in the house. So there was a slight issue selling because there was a pee smell that hadn't been there when I was there regularly uh, because nobody was peeing. Um, so, so that was difficult. It was difficult until, so he would always, somehow block the sale of the house in 2020, 21, 22. I finally had him removed in 23. And then it really was smooth sailing. Like it's fascinating how uh, he was such a bully and so controlling. And as soon as I got him out of the house, he just sort of crumbled, just crumbled. And, uh, and I was, I, then I couldn't put the house on the market because I couldn't get up for four months. I was busy on the couch with the wine. Uh, but then I got the house on the market um, and it was fine. It sold in two months. And had you had contact with them ever since then? Oh, yes. Um, so I do. I am in contact with this person. And I've just sort of developed kind of my own strategy for it, which is I don't I don't think I can overcome the part of the trauma bond that is about um, helping him. And so I still do try to help him. Uh, but I'm very, very strict with myself so that when he starts doing the victim thing that pulls me in, that gets me like, oh, I feel so sorry for you. I actually just say that I have to go and I hang up. Um, so I, I hang up a lot. 
Uh, I often don't answer when he calls. I only answer when, um, when I know that I'm emotionally balanced and clear and strong to deal with him. And, but I have called him too. I don't, I don't want to act like he's the only one. So I have called him and talked to him about, about a few things. And I just make sure that I am emotionally balanced when I'm doing it. And I work on myself afterward. Like I'm not going to get re-emotionally hooked into this guy. Um, so I go, I date other people, right? And I, I make sure that I go out with other people. Um, so, so I'm doing all these things, trying to balance it so that, sure, you know, if at the end of the day, I never overcome the trauma bond and I do help him, like maybe I get him into psychedelic therapy, great. But we're not together. We're not an item. I'm dating other people like trying to keep the lines really clear. And so far that's been good, but the 2000 miles distance helps the most. You know, you were in a relationship for 18 years. Yeah. So it's not something that goes away quickly at all. Yeah. And if he, I know this is an what if question, (laughs) but if one day he just cut off contact from you, would you be devastated about that? I think I'd be happy. Okay. I think it, I think it's, it's like the way that this trauma bond works. It's all pity. It's all like, he's all just, Oh my God, I have to help him. And it's like, it's compulsive. It's like, I can't stop saving him. So, so you're, you're still running on guilt right now. Yeah. There's the, he, he can pull the guilt out of me for sure. Uh, but yeah, I think I'd be relieved. So I guess before we go today, do you have any words of wisdom for everyone who's listening? Oh, man. Um, So I want to thank your podcast and also recommend Tony Overbay's Waking Up to Narcissism and Jess's Traumatized Motherfucker podcast is a great podcast. I also enjoyed the books uh, Judith Herman, Trauma and Recovery. And Don Hennessy, How He Gets Into Her Head. Both really good books if you're looking for something to read. Um, and then my, my thoughts are, you know, people who are capable and responsible are going to tend to pick up the slack for someone who is not. Um, and that, that means that you have all these virtues and that somebody's taking advantage of them. Make sure they are actually grand for real and not just full of hot air. And people who know a lot know that they're ignorant of a lot. Um, but I think our, our big vulnerability, all of us, is that we can see that narcissism comes from childhood trauma. Uh, pathologically kind people get enmeshed in these relationships and they see that traumatized child in the narcissist. And then we try to help them because we see that they're severely damaged, especially the covert nar- narcs. Um, and it's so counterintuitive to accept that our personal growth actually means being less kind and less understanding and more self-protective and also more clear about seeing that a damaged person may actually be trying to sabotage you because they're jealous of your success. So yeah, feel sorry for the damage, but no, don't allow them to damage you in their narcissistic rage. Narcissists are zombies playing out old scripts from their childhood programming. They are little children and they think that you are their parent. And so they do rail and rage and call you all these terrible names, these terrible things about you. 
because they expect you to be the mature adult where it just rolls off because nobody nobody believes anything a two-year-old says not really um so they're surprised when you hold them accountable because they're they're still two and just kind of recognizing that what you need to do is um like hold on to that you are the adult in the relationship and what that means is that don't take don't take their words seriously that's so hard to do in a love relationship you know your partner is supposed to be the person who supports you and helps you out um but knowing that like if they're railing at you and saying that you're selfish and evil and all of this stuff it's a two-year-old temper tantrum well raven I really want to thank you for being our guest today. And, you know, you just didn't tell a story today. You know, within that story, you were really able to validate so many people's experiences from the little nuances that are going on to all of the feelings that are going on. And also, you know, your experience of really being at life's basics and what this type of abuse can do and how far it can, you know, really take you away or out of you. And, you know, you being on a floor and not being able to get up and, you know, struggling on the day to day. Uh, You know, you're working in universities, you're uh, like working to be a professor and your life was going well. You were on the trajectory. You were about to be at your dream. And then everything over those 18 years, you know, finally caught up. And you were playing defense the whole time and maneuvering. And eventually, you know, you got tired and you, and you had to lay down. And now you're in a spot where you're going to finally be able to get back to the place where you want to be to get that dream that you always wanted. If it's still your dream, if that dream even matters anymore, because that was was programming from a long time ago. But you did a really good job of telling your story today, and I really can't thank you enough uh, for being here with us and sharing. And I know you're going to help at least one person. So a big, big thank you from the bottom of my heart for being here. Brandon Chadwick, thank you for an awesome podcast. Well, Raven, thank you for those words. And thank you for being our guest once again. And if you want to be a guest like Raven was today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says guest form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our guest form page. There you can read all of our instructions and either send it in an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our guest form and press the submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. And if you are someone who needs support, Narcissist Apocalypse has a support group. And at NarcissistApocalypse.com, at the top of the page, you'll see a support group button. And when you click on that button, it takes you to our very own safe social network. And inside, you'll see that we have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night, 
Thursday afternoons and Saturday nights. We also have forum boards for you to post on to get the validation that you need or advice from other survivors just like you. And you are there as well to give, you know, all of the validation to other survivors just like you, share your experiences, make friends on there. And it's a really wonderful group of people who are in our support group. So if you need support, join our support group today. And that is at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, press that support group button. And if you need even more support, please do visit our friends at DomesticShelters.org. And at DomesticShelters.org, they have articles and resources to help you make sense of what you are dealing with. They have every phone number, every email address, and every web address for shelters and agencies, no matter how big or small the town you are in. DomesticShelters.org has it there. It is a wonderful free resource. It is a wonderful organization. And a big shout out to Ashley from DomesticShelters.org, a wonderful person as well. So if you need that extra support, please do go to DomesticShelters.org. And we here at Narcissist Apocalypse have a new friend to the show, and it is an organization called Shelter Movers, which you can reach at sheltermovers.com. And Shelter Movers helps survivors of domestic violence transition to a better and safer life. And currently, it is just a Canadian company, but they are looking to be spreading into the United States. It's a volunteer organization, and it's a donor-supported charitable, charitable organization as well. And what they do is they help coordinate moves for people who are getting out of domestic violence. It's this interesting part of the domestic violence escape process, you know, getting to safety, getting all of your things out of your home, and they set up storage as well for all of your belongings because a lot of people have a lot of things. And that includes things like pets. And they will also help you find homes, temporary homes for your animals. And that's just not pets. That's also livestock as well because so many people here, you know, sometimes part of the way you might be living in the future you know you might have cows you might have pigs you might have a lot of livestock chickens and you need that to be uh, self-sufficient if you are working a farm so they also help with livestock as well and rehoming them until you are able to get back on your feet in in a bigger place and back on maybe farm life as well and it's just a wonderful organization sheltermovers.com so check them out if you want to know more about this wonderful organization or if you need help from them as well or if you want to donate to them as well and that is it for our show today So for myself and Raven, we hope you have a good night.